Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in the fifth week of a series that we've called Signs. And during this series, we're unpacking what just might be the most influential document in all of human history. It's called the Gospel of John. It's basically an account of Jesus' life written by a man named John. He was one of the first people to follow Jesus 2,000 years ago. He was one of the first people to believe in Jesus 2,000 years ago. Uh, and John's gospel is unique uh, because he actually confesses to having an agenda for what he wrote. So decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, John writes the following words at the end of his account of Jesus' life. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. In other words, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't tell you, but he, he said, which are not recorded in this book. But he says, but these, as in the stuff I did select, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. John says, like, unapologetically, I wrote what I did in order to help you believe what I've come to believe. I laid out the evidence that I followed or the signs that I followed that led me to that place where I put my faith in Jesus. And so for this series, we're going through the seven signs that John presents in his gospel one at a time. And to get us going with our conversation today, I want to start with a really interesting question. And it's a question you may have asked yourself, either at a conscious or subconscious level. It goes like this. How can a rational person come to believe in Jesus despite having unanswered questions? How can a rational person come to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus, to put their faith in Jesus, despite having unanswered questions. In other words, does faith in Jesus need to be blind or is there another option? Because if we're honest, there all of us have a few unanswered questions with regards to our faith in God that have the potential to keep us from fully engaging in our pursuit of faith. Uh, questions like, and I just put some categories on the screen, questions like pain, like can I really believe in a loving God when the world is filled with so much pain? And if I'm honest, my life has had seasons where it's been filled with so much pain. It's a great question. How about prayer, right? Uh, does prayer work? Or, or maybe better, how can I believe in a loving God who leaves so many of my prayers unanswered? Or maybe for you, if you're more bent scientifically, you're like, do I have to choose between my belief in God and science. Is, is it an either or? Or is there a way that it maybe can be a both end? It's a great question. I, you know, I struggle with miracles. I just don't know. Do I have to believe in the miracles in order to place my faith in Jesus? Or can I have unanswered questions? And then finally, this one, can I believe in Jesus and doubt that he really is the only way to peace with God or the only way to get to heaven? Great questions. Those questions will lead me to Another question, because I would argue that we all have some questions. Maybe I didn't put yours on the screen, but this is maybe another question that falls out of this. If everyone has unanswered questions about God, how can anyone cross the line of faith in Jesus? Because a whole bunch of us have. And, and if you're here and you're seeking and you're wondering and you're kicking the tires and you're looking around going, these seem to be fairly rational people. Like, how did they ever get there? And that tension is front and center in the story we get to unpack today from the life of Jesus. 
Uh, Here's a little bit of context. As we enter the text, Jesus and his disciples have returned from the Sea of Galilee region in the north of Israel to the city of Jerusalem. Here's a picture of Jerusalem, uh, an artist rendering in the first century. And I love this picture because it, it illustrates the prominence that the temple to God had. The entire city was built around the temple. So if you were in Jerusalem in those days, especially as a visitor, you were there likely because of the temple or some business you needed to do at the temple. Uh, But at the time of this narrative, uh, Jesus and his disciples enter the city of Jerusalem and things are a bit tense for them because the religious leaders, the Jewish religious establishment is very suspicious of Jesus. He's teaching things and people are listening to him that seem to suggest that maybe the way they're doing things isn't right. And so they start to see him as a threat. And so just carry that with you into the story that John presents to us. Starting in John 9, verse 1, it goes like this. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we would say that's a really strange question. That's not probably a question that we've ever asked, but, but just a bit of historical context. Uh, first century Jews believed there was a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. Basically, if somebody was suffering, it was because they had sinned or their parents had sinned, and they believed that the suffering person was basically getting what they deserved. Now, if you think about that, think about the way that would affect the way that these people would be shown compassion, right? They would be looked upon with judgment, not mercy, because they're simply getting what they deserve, right? They've been, in a way, cursed by God. And you say, well, that doesn't really make sense, but But we all know that there can be a connection between behavior and suffering. Sometimes our behavior causes us to suffer. Sometimes we suffer because of someone else's choices. Uh, But when that's the case, you can generally see the connection. It's observable. And what Jesus is about to tell us is that when you can't see the connection, there's not a connection. Here's, Here's what he says in answer to their question. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened, in other words, he was born blind, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And here's why I find this so fascinating. I imagine this man who has been blind his entire life listening to this conversation. And he would have expected the disciples' question because he probably heard that question quite a bit. Like, what did he do? What do you think he did? But Jesus says, no, there's there's no connection. But then this part is even harder. But this happened, like he was born blind so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And I imagine the guy sitting there going, what? You you mean to tell me that there's a purpose behind my pain? How is that fair? How is that just? He had a few unanswered questions in that moment himself. But it does suggest something for at least for us to consider over lunch at Panera afterwards. Don't all go to Panera. It'd be a very long line, right? Jesus' pain and suffering had a purpose. Is it possible that when we enter seasons of suffering and pain, God has a purpose behind that as well? Again, I I don't know that for sure, but that's definitely suggested by this scene. But anyway, as Jesus continues, um, he appears to change topics, which is one of Jesus' favorite things to do. Here's what Jesus says next. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And I just imagine Peter looking at James and John going, he did it again, right? Like what, he's always doing this. We have no idea what he's talking about. But but basically what Jesus is saying here, Jesus verbalizes the point of John's entire gospel. 
Jesus looks at his disciples and, and he's basically setting them up for what's going to come next. And he says, listen, while I'm in the world, my identity is going to burn so brightly that you need to pay attention. Because who I am is going to be on display while I'm on the world in a way that when I leave the earth, it, it won't be. So, so take notes, especially you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just take some notes because you're going to need that later, right? But while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, so pay attention. Now, as the story continues, so we've got Jesus and the disciples walking along. There's a blind guy. They have this conversation. Things get super awkward. Here's what happens next. Having said this, Jesus spit on the ground which apparently Mary did not cover when, when he was a kid. You ever talk to your kids about that? Like, yeah, don't spit on the ground. That's disgusting. But, and they could say, but well, Jesus did it. So and my kids that are here, don't do that. Okay, anyway. Yeah, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva. That's just gross, right? And put it on the man's eyes. That's really gross. And I, I kind of wish I could have been a fly uh, I, you know, in the corner of the room watching this whole thing go down because it raises so many interesting questions. I mean, did Jesus ask the dude? before he put mud on his eyes? Or was the guy just sitting there and he hears this? <laughs> and the disciples are like, what is he doing? And then you hear him bend down. I mean, and then pretty soon he feels something on his face and he's trying to figure out what in the world is going. It would have been painfully awkward for the blind guy, for the disciples. They're like, I'm not sure. Do we just want to unfollow Jesus? Because he just crossed the line. Just seems really inappropriate. And so then he puts mud on his eyes and then he says something to the guy. He says, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So he sent to the pool called sent. Go and wash. Here's this kind of something just for fun. Uh, if you visit Jerusalem today, you can actually visit the pool of Siloam. Archaeologists have, have uncovered it. Um, it's at the end of a really creepy tunnel dug by King Hezekiah 700 years before the time of Jesus. So 2,700 years ago, you can literally walk through this. It's seven football fields in length. And if you're tall like me, you're going like this the whole time. You feel like Gollum a little bit, right? Um, if you're short, you're going to love it. It's awesome. You can get pictures and everything else. But, but anyway, uh, you could still um, visit this place today. Kind of fun. So Jesus says to the man, go uh, wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam. And so somehow this guy makes his way across the city of Jerusalem. Maybe a friend led him. Maybe he just sort of found his way. Maybe he was close. We don't know where the scene was set in the city. John tells us, so the man went and washed and came home seeing, just like that. And I love it. John's like, yeah, that, that was good. It was a, that, was the, that was the miracle. And you say, okay, that, that's interesting. What do you want us to know about that? Well, I would argue to really understand why John sees this as a sign uh, it was really more than a miracle in a moment. It was, it was a sign. You have, to keep, you have to keep reading. So the guy chooses to trust Jesus. He literally walks by faith and not by sight. And, and he gets to the pool and he learns that the rumors that he's heard about Jesus are true. That for this rabbi, impossible things are possible. That, that anything could happen. And so because it was Jesus who told him to go and wash, he went and he washed. And then he saw, his eyes were opened, and he immediately heads for home. John tells us what happens when he gets there. He says his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, in other words, they grew up around him. And again, if you're cursed and everyone sees you as being judged by God, it's not an easy path. So he's sitting and he's constantly asking people for food and for help just to get through the day. Formerly seen him begging, he said, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? In Jerusalem, was it massive in the ancient world? These people would have known this guy. They would have grown up with this guy. He continues. He says, some claim that he was, and others said, no, he only looks like him, right? 
But he himself insisted, I am the man. And you say, you know why, you know why the neighbors were asking? Because it just, it didn't make any sense. The blind guy who they had seen for years begging for compassion was suddenly seeing. It was unexplainable. And so they asked the logical question. They asked what you and I would have asked. How then were your eyes opened? How'd this happen? They demanded and he replied. The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it onto my eyes. I know that sounds gross. He told me to go to Siloam and, and wash. And because I had enough faith because of what I had heard, I went and I washed. And then I could see. And they said, well, where is this man? Like, this is, this is unbelievable. Where, where is this man? And I love this. He goes, I don't know. Do you know why he didn't know? Because he had never seen Jesus. He had no idea what he looked like. <laughs> Jesus could have been in the corner watching. And he's like, hey, I don't know who that guy is, but he seems really interested. Right. Yeah, he didn't, he hadn't seen anything. So anyway, recognizing that something miraculous had taken place, the neighbors of this recently healed man did what they were supposed to do in the first century based on their Jewish tradition. They were supposed to take someone who had experienced a miracle to a group of Jewish religious leaders that were experts in the Old Testament. They were called Pharisees. Because in the first century, the Pharisees were charged with identifying someone they called the Messiah. In the Greek, the word is Christ. They're one in the same. And so the idea is that uh, they were supposed to be on the lookout for this promised prophet king who was going to come and restore Israel's dignity, restore Israel's purpose, and sort of bring about all the wonderful things that were prophesied that would one day happen to Israel. But life in the first century was really, really hard, and they had been crying out for God to send this Messiah. And so if they had a piece of evidence that might help them identify someone as the Messiah, that was serious business. And so they take the man to the religious leaders in order to verify the miracle. And so they're likely in a synagogue or maybe they're, you know, near the temple on the southern steps. John tells us what happens next. He says, now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And we kind of go, oh, that's an interesting detail, right? I mean, that would, okay, so he healed the guy on Saturday. What's the big deal? Well, for the first century Jewish audience, this was a massive deal. In fact, this starts to point us to why this is more than a miracle, why this is actually a sign. If we were watching a movie of this, the music would change dramatically at this point. Like the joyous, the guy gets healed, everything's great, and all of a sudden it's the Sabbath, and all of a sudden the Jaws music starts up or something. Because, because you see, Jesus had done it again. And he had done it on purpose. It's almost like he's trying to pick a fight with the religious leaders because he's trying to pick a fight with the religious leaders. If you were with us a few weeks ago, you may remember that according to the Jewish tradition, it wasn't allowed to heal or to practice medicine on the Sabbath unless it was to save someone's life. That was the way they had interpreted the Old Testament command given through Moses that said, do no work on the Sabbath day. It's a set apart day. It's a holy day. And so they had to figure out what work meant, and they decided that if you were healing someone or practicing medicine, or even, this is interesting, kneading something, like K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, kneading, like so Jesus bends down, spits in the, in the mud, and kneads the, the, the saliva and dirt into mud. I mean, that's, he's breaking the, their commands. And so John tells us, because it was a Sabbath, because, uh, therefore the Pharisees also asked the man how he had received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I could see. And so here's what the Pharisees do with that piece of information. 
Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. There's no way he's the Messiah. There's no way he's a prophet. In fact, there's no way he's even from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And what's interesting is, that's technically not true. <laughs> what Jesus doesn't keep is their version of the Sabbath. He didn't really break any of God's written laws. The problem was Jesus wasn't fitting their expectations and interpretations of God's law. And so they determined he can't possibly be from God. But notice something with me. The Pharisees may not be able to explain it, but the healing is undeniable. So they in that moment have to choose between the unexplainable and the undeniable. And if you're around here, you know we point to that a lot in the life of Jesus. They're confronted with something that they can't explain. And yet it is undeniably true. It's unexplainable to them that God would heal on a Sabbath, but it's also undeniable that a man who could never see suddenly can see. And so the, the, the Pharisees, they have a problem here. And so they decide to dig a little deeper. They decide to have a conversation with the man. So they turn away from the meeting they're having with themselves and finally they turn again to the blind man and they said, what have you to say about him, this Jesus? It was your eyes he opened. Like, what, what do you think? The man replied, he's a prophet. In other words, he's from God. And the guy's like, obviously he's from God. He just healed me. I, I never could see and I could see. Now the Jews still didn't believe that he'd been blind. So they said, okay, we can't deny the fact that you can see now, but we maybe can deny the fact that you ever were blind. Like maybe this whole thing is a setup and Jesus is trying to mess with us. So, so uh, this is great. So they, didn't, uh, they did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. We're going to talk to mom, okay? Because mom knows that we're the religious leaders and that we have some swagger in these parts. And so we're just going to talk to the mom and she's going to set this straight. He continues. Um, they said, so they get the parents there. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? And how is it he now, that he now can see? Uh, and they said, okay, um, well, we know he's our son. The parents answered. And we know he was born blind. Um, it was hard. And everyone thought that we had sinned because he was born blind. And he wasn't old enough to do anything wrong when he was born blind. And so everyone looked at us and what did you do? And did you go to the pagan temple while you were pregnant? Did God curse you? It was hard. And he needed extra help. We had to save and scrap. So yeah, we know he was born blind. Absolute clarity on that part. And he says, but now how he can see now or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And he said to me, what, what's going on in the minds of the Pharisees at this moment? And I, I think it's simply this. There wasn't room in the worldview of the Pharisees for what they were experiencing. God wasn't meeting their assumptions. He was operating outside of, of their box of what God would do and not do. And so they were confused and they were frustrated and you can start to sense it as the conversation continues. In fact, in, as John continues, he gives us a really important detail. The parents, uh, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, speaking of the religious leaders. For already the religious leaders had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ or Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They'd be excommunicated, like you're not welcome here. Uh, you're either with him or you're with us. 
Because you can sense in this moment, Jesus has become the enemy of the religious establishment. He's not playing by their rules. He's taking things in, in different directions. But see, a lot of the people in those days, the Jewish people were resonating with what Jesus was doing. And, and so, so they were following and so the man being put out of the synagogue, that's a big deal. That means he can't get certain jobs and he's kind of seen as an outcast. But, but again, the Pharisees had already decided that the information that they were being presented didn't fit their interpretation and they didn't care. Any explanation that included the Messiah healing on the Sabbath was unacceptable. So they said, we want to know how this happened, but you need to define it within the terms we've already identified. And the irony in this moment is stunning. Because it's actually the religious leaders who are blind in this story. They were blinded by their presuppositions. They were operating with suffocating confirmation bias. You know, confirmation bias, it's that thing where you only accept information as true that affirms what you've already decided is true. They only wanted to be, have confirmed what they already believed. But the religious leaders, they still really aren't at peace with this. So they call the guy back again. Like, maybe we're going to have one more conversation and maybe we can actually get somewhere with this guy. So a second time, they summon the man who'd been blind and they kind of get a little feisty. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner, right? If, he, if his healing happened on the Sabbath, there's no way he's from God. He's obviously a sinner. The guy says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. That's really, that's between him and God, Right? But one, one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And actually, if, I, if I'm honest with you guys, that's kind of enough for me, right? And you may not like my explanation, but it's true. I don't know everything. I don't understand how. But here's the thing, and this actually kind of gets us to our big idea for today. I don't have to understand everything to believe something. I don't have to understand everything to believe something. I don't have to be able to explain everything to believe what's right before my eyes. And I don't have to be able to articulate how something happened in order to believe that something happened. And that's true for the recently healed man 2,000 years ago. And I would argue that's true for you and I today. In fact, maybe this is where you've been hung up on your journey of faith. You really want to understand everything before you believe anything. And I get that. It's natural for all of us. But, but what if you're not supposed to understand everything? What if there really is a God and he's so much bigger than we can possibly get our mind around, you can't understand everything? What if there are questions about God that don't have answers this side of eternity? And what if instead of getting all the information before you cross the line of faith, God just wants you to consider what there is to consider. And maybe that's why John was led to write his account of Jesus' life like he did. I love that the formerly blind man admits that he can't answer all their questions. He doesn't know if Jesus is a sinner. He doesn't know if Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't know why there's so much pain in the world if God is good. He doesn't know why prayers don't always seem to do what we think they should do. He doesn't know why he had to live decades as a blind person before he was healed. Like, couldn't we have had this miraculous healing like before my bar mitzvah? I mean, that would have been great, right? I, but, but I got all these unanswered questions, but here's what I know for sure. I was blind and now I see. And here's the fun part when you think about this, for many of us, this is sort of like our story. 
through a variety of possible life circumstances, we reached the end of ourselves. And we found ourselves looking up. For the first time, maybe with an honesty that we had never allowed ourselves before. Like our pride was gone and we had a clear line of sight straight up to God. Maybe we had a season when our life was controlled by, by addiction or we had a key relationship that reached a breaking point and, and it wasn't recoverable and we felt so out of control or we had a season where we were lonely and broken and we had nowhere else to go and so we just, we, we couldn't look around so we looked up and we cried out to God and we can't fully explain it but something happened and it's like, if a friend who's outside of faith, you try to explain it to them, you might even say, you know, it's almost like I was blind and now I can see in a way that I couldn't see before. And when we tell our story, it's like we freely acknowledge there's some of this that's so mysterious, we can't explain it, but it's undeniable. We don't ever want to go back to where we were before. Something happened that allowed us to pack up our questions and carry them across the line of faith in Jesus. It's not that all the questions were answered or, or that we were satisfied with having them unanswered. It's just something happened that shrunk our questions or at least shrunk the importance that they had in our lives. So let's jump back in the story. I'd love to show you how this lands. It's great. Um, the Pharisees asked the man a question he can't answer. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Would you like to hear it again? Like we've already been through this twice, right? Do you want to become his disciples too? And he's being funny there, right? Because they can't stand Jesus. But he's like, obviously, if you, I mean, you're looking for mechanisms. So, hey, maybe you want to sign up. So here's how they respond very maturely. Then they hurtled insults at him. That always helps. We know that God spoke to Moses as in the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. Like we're all about Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. We don't know anything about him. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He just confronts him. He's like, you gotta be kidding me. The, the, what I've experienced, this has to be God. There's no explanation for it. To which they replied, oh, you're right. No, they didn't. They said, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. It's almost like they say to him, you deserve to be born blind. Your parents deserved to struggle as they raised you. you they, they deserve to be embarrassed as you became a beggar. How dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out of the synagogue, which he said was a really big deal. But I would argue for this man, it was still a really good day. <laughs> it's fascinating to me that the Pharisees refused to see what could be seen. They refused to discover what could be discovered. They were, they were too afraid to peer beyond the known into the unknown. And a few of you just thought of Frozen too, I know, but it's okay, right? They were terrified by the idea that their theology and their interpretation could be wrong. They were unable to consider the possibility that God might play by, not play by their rules. But in the end, because of their self-inflicted blindness, they missed what God was doing in their midst. And so, so I think, you know, what does that mean for you and me 2,000 years later? Here's a thought. Every once in a while, someone says to me, um, 
you know, you're kind of like nerdy, thanks, you know, and you're kind of science-y, if that's a word. Like, do you have unanswered questions about God? Because, I mean, you seem really confident on Sundays, but like, what about in the quiet moments of your life? Because sometimes you meet with people that have had unspeakable pain under their lives and they're asking God, what in the world? And you probably go home at night and think, God, what in the world? So how do you, how do you deal with the question? They say, of course I have, of course I have questions. But I'll tell you this, when, I, when they rise up in my heart, what I do is I focus on that which is undeniable. And for me, there's like three categories. There's what, what I've experienced firsthand from God. And there's what I've experienced through others, life lessons that I've been, had the privilege of journey with. And it's also some things that I've learned from history, the, the undeniable things. Because it really is undeniable that 2,000 years ago, a Jewish rabbi showed up in Israel with an absolutely incredible, counterintuitive message that was destined to change the world. He called followers and then he said things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, that is not a message that ever should have made it out of the gate. That it's so counter, people are like, that is absolutely, that is an unacceptable message, Jesus. And yet it made it out of the gate. Not only did it make it out of the gate, it made its way around the world. So sociologically speaking, Jesus' message shouldn't have made it out of the first century, but it did. And if you say, well, well, why? Was it just the idea? And I say, no, 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 no. Jesus actually predicted something else. He said he was going to die and then rise again. And that really was counterintuitive. But then hundreds and hundreds of people affirmed that he did it. And then a few of them wrote about it. And now 2,000 years later, on every single continent in the world, men and women tell stories about how they've had a personal encounter with God through Jesus. And the stories are eerily similar to the ones that we hear in America. What's undeniable is that all over the world, people have embraced God as their heavenly father because Jesus invited them to. And they've embraced Jesus as their personal savior and their lives have been changed. And so as I was like, Prepping this week, I thought, okay, if, for those of you that are here that are seeking and kicking, I, I, seeking and kicking, you're not kicking anything. Anyway, seeking, right? Exploring. I can't convince you about Jesus. My goal for today, though, is to let you know that there is an avenue by which you can pick up your unanswered questions, put them on your back, and carry them across the line of faith in Jesus. There really is. And, and I think our big idea today explains why. It goes like this, and we'll end here. You don't have to understand everything to believe something. You don't have to understand everything to believe something. I believe this is the message that John was trying to convey when he selected the healing of a blind man sent to a pool called Scent and wrote those words down 2,000 years ago. Would you stand, and I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge uh, that there is a mystery to the heart of faith. We also acknowledge that this has more to do with our limited capacity to understand than anything about you. And so for this morning, we just, we worship you for who you are, for what you have done. We thank you that you sent the light of the world into the darkness of this planet to invite us into something 
so much better than we can even imagine. I pray for friends who came in this morning with unanswered questions. More than a few with tears in their eyes. I pray that you would meet them with your peace. That you would whisper to them that you love them more than they can possibly imagine and that you might ignite hope. That brighter days are coming. I pray that you would give them feet to walk the path in front of them. But for this moment, we just say thank you. And we bless you in the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Everyone said, amen. Friends, if you're in need of prayer, uh, right under the screen on this side, there's a few people who'd love to meet you. Otherwise, go in peace, enjoy the sunshine, and we'll see you next week.